Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Let's get Skinnamarinked. Skinnamarinky-dinked. Have you, have you ever looked around your house, Ash, and thought to yourself, there are way too many windows, doors, and toilets in this building? And, you know, you could <laughs> remove them manually, but there's got to be a better way. <laughs> you know, when, when, I, when I was, every, everyone was like, oh my god, in the Skinnamarink house, there's no windows, doors, or bathrooms. And I'm like, so you're renting in any major yeah, city I, in America I was, I was or the like, UK? Oh, yeah, I lived there when I was 22. It's fine. <laughs> I, too, have rented a studio apartment. <laughs> what, what, you mean you're telling me that they didn't have to pay £750 a month for this privilege? Come on. <laughs> oh, make, make sure to tip your landlords. Otherwise, you get skinnamarinked. That's, that's the lesson today. I'm kidding. Don't get, give your landlords a tip. Here's a tip. Get a real job. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, but if 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 landlords went to school, they they would have a real job. If you know, all landlords should get off their ass and go become an electrician. You know, right? Or an electrician, a performance artist, yep, an experimental painter, absolutely. a real job. Absolutely. Uh, clearly, far too many people have been allowed to go and do business studies and should be Ugh. and should be told that they really need to be doing like employable degrees, like experimental cinematography or performance art. Or um, you know, creative writing, and maybe the, there would be fewer mm-hmm. fewer landlords who are not gainfully employed and don't have anything to do with themselves. And people who are right now, while they're listening to this episode, outlining their next Sonic the Hedgehog Mpreg fiction, are doing more for society than every landlord who has ever lived. I, inarguably true. Inarguably <laughs> true. John, do you want to know who else has done more for society uh, than any landlord who's ever lived? Kyle Edward Ball, the creator of Skinnamarinked. The uh, tangent I am ending to begin discussing the episode. There we go. We, we found, we dug our way out of the tangent that we had steered ourselves into. We're talking about Skinnamarink this week. Uh, hello, I'm John. I am joined as ever by my friend and yours, uh, the spookiest voice in the HV crypt. Ash, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing really good, covered in lots of strange bug bites. I've literally been a, in, a, in a swamp for the last two weeks about. So, you know, I'm, I've am i never, you know, my doctor told me to go get take take some fresh air by a large body of water, and I chose an acidic swampscape. I mean, I genuinely didn't know if you were going to come back. <laughs> I... I, I <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know. I just thought that you might just message me and just be like, "I I belong to the fans now." <laughs> um, but we are talking about something that has been much requested, has been much. De- I could even say demanded by listeners. People wa- really want to know what we think and what we have to say about Skinnamarink. Um, so we are in the HV crypt. All of the doors and windows have been removed. We are in. <laughs> The podcasting hellscape, and it falls to me as ever to ask my co-host to explain to me, to you, to everybody else listening, what Skinnamarink is about. He did see something that night. I've been struggling to grapple with what feels like a disconnect I have with popular nostalgia. 
Nostalgia, classically, is a pained yearning to return to a home that one can no longer return to. The consequence of a happy memory is that we must live with it as an echo that has decreasing fidelity. A happiness we can't have, a joy we can no longer experience. I will never again get to be an elementary school student playing Final Fantasy on a snow day. Nothing can return, recreate, or approximate th that joy. And so, for it, I have become nostalgic. I could imagine a hell wherein some venture capital group creates a startup called Snow Day. It would allow adults to book time in a room that emulates childhood snow days, complete with nostalgic foods, games, and the synthetic experience of being a child. I would take such a creation as a base insult to the human condition, to which the only proper response would be a tall and proud embracing of Luddite political theory. Every attempt I've made to recreate the steps of my nostalgia has been met with a toxic failure. Not just an inability to recreate the nostalgic event, but a poisoning of the psychic bonds that tie the nostalgic into memory. The contemporary world, the jaded vision of adulthood, capitalism's tendency to extract away all that could last, it all acts to reinforce the core lessons of nostalgia. I keep seeing these short-form videos that say something to the effect of, the best part of being 30 is now that I make adult money, I can buy all the toys I couldn't have as a child. I can see the shape of a left appraisal of that urge, that use of play as a direct refusal of neoliberal productivity culture. I too would much rather be at play than at work. Yet, when I see piles of vinyl action figures on display, I don't see play, I see idolatry in the name of capital. I see a shrine to petrochemical manufacturing and Vietnamese child sweatshop labor. I know I've felt the boss's yoke for so long, and there are so many ways in which I've forgotten its presence. But I won't have tooth and claw squandered on the plasticine regurgitation of my own memories. Petrochemicals burn the earth, our bodies, and the psychohistoric bonds we share. Each encounter with a false nostalgia singes the edges of a true memory and reduces the collective identity of the self to nothing more than a Transformers marketing campaign. There's no way out, only through. So where does this leave the late capitalistic necro-nostalgia? I recently bought a copy of I Spy Spooky Nights. The photographer behind the I Spy books, Walter Wick, has been a source of inspiration of mine since I first encountered these puzzle books. I didn't seek out this for the sake of my own nostalgia, but to direct a future one. I'm now a photographer in my own right, though my subjects are much different than Wick's. I've been feeling that there's something I can learn from the playfulness and precision of his compositions. The Ashley Darrow of 2023 is communing with the Ashley Darrow of 1994. I'm not seeking to recreate those hazy memories of sitting in a children's section of a cold rural library, poring over I spy books looking for clues, but rather hoping to generate something new from something foolish. I would never disrespect my own history by being sold some funkified Xerox of my own memories, but I would traverse the fading lands of nostalgia to see what is to be seen before time and tide take us all under. Capitalism wants us forever recycling our nostalgia, becoming passive units of exchange rather than agential actors directing the flow of coming nostalgic moments. In the years to come, I do not wish to be awash in the bought and sold signifiers of childhood memories. I would hope that I have lived such a life that the ash of the future will have cultivated new sets of nostalgias that they can, in turn, till like a rich soil. Nostalgia. We can never go home, but together there is no telling where we can go.
Do you hear that? My vintage Fisher-Price Chatter Pull Toy telephone is ringing. It's your invitation to join us as we discuss Skinamarine. I hope to heaven you're right. Yes, yes indeed. Yes indeed. Then let us open our eyes in the half-light of night and look onto the landing from the bedroom into the murk and gloom of the formalism zone. zone, zone. Um, I kind of don't want to put the drop in because there's so many happy birds in the background <laughs> right now. And I'm just going to like, I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going wild out there. <laughs> Where I would like to kind of start is with this question of, of the kind of aesthetics of this film and what it means to create and recreate film as an aesthetic so this this i think is really interesting right uh skinner inc was shot on digital uh shot by kyle edward ball who has a great youtube channel where a lot of the proto skinner inc films were originally posted and this is this is something that i've kind of been been puzzling over right because like I, I just shot a bunch of uh, 50 foot reels of Super 8 and like going to have genuine actual super shot on Super 8 footage rather than kind of these attempts at recreating it. And the, the attempts at recreating uh, either older digital or filmic recording technologies mean artificially inserting in things that were in the past defects. So all of that film grain, all of that noise, uh, those all the damage you see, all of the cuts, things like cigarette burns. These were all kind of the unfortunate byproducts of working with the medium, things that you didn't want in your movie. But now we kind of like desperately crave them. And in, even in stuff where you attempts to recreate VHS aesthetic is one of the most interesting for me because like it's the one that I can most clearly see that th- that the aesthetic is now an amalgam of the actual technology you know, you'll see like what is being presented to you as a videotape, but with like the little recording light flashing in the corner that you would you would have seen through the eyepiece and not necessarily on the tape itself. Or you would see like tracking lines and just kind of like all of the stuff that what I'm getting at, what I'm rambling towards is that we're we're approximating aesthetics of a technology because we've severed our ties to it. Yeah, I guess in ways I guess, that I don't think are necessarily helpful. I guess that's the question, right? Which is like what does grain represent now? Because as you say this is sh- shot on digital. There is no there is no grain. Uh like and now I feel like I feel like it represents the it represents the visualization of kind of performative insufficiency mm-hmm. because technology, especially digital photography technology, has reached a point of kind of like um, an ever more perfect fidelity of representation. Yeah. So grain is like literally the is the literalization of imperfection. And it has to be deliberately added back in, which I actually think is a really interesting move for any artistic medium to go through, right? This idea that you actually have to have, you have to take effort to add in the appearance of flaw. Which which I think is absolutely essential too, right? Like, 
you, you can you can get grain in t- contemporary I mean, like not grain, but noise. You can get a lot of noise with contemporary digital technology by pushing it to its limits. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like the latest professional Sony camera, and not even like a camera that you would use on a Hollywood movie, but just you know, like a camera that like a professional wedding photographer would have, has such a comically good low light performance. Yeah. You know, like we we get these crystal clear images with a, a cartoonish amount of megapixels. I mean, that there's no structurally, there's no hiding. Yeah, on on the pixel level, this kind of film is hauntological because mm-hmm. it is artificially performing a kind of artistic medium that no longer really exists in the same way. Right to to look at this, yes. there it, it's it's inevitable. You have to basically what I, I I guess what I'm trying to get at is like Skinnerink is trying to put forward a kind a certain conception of cinematic historiography, right? This idea of of in a quite literal sense the medium being what is communicated, and you can't help then. In, in that case, run up against the inevitable problem of the digital being made to look like a uh, film with, you know, cigarette burns or or noise or artifacts or, or grain, which is of inauthenticity. Or, or to put it maybe slightly more charitably, structurally and formally, the film is inevitably interested in questions of the fragility of representation in memory. Because that's really the only other way that we have of preserving time, right? Mm-hmm. So to like this is this is the great this is the great kind of uh, the, the kind of step forward represented by moving images, not just photography, but by film photography is the preservation mm-hmm. of time. But that preservation of time is so deeply, in a way, artificial, simply because. If it weren't artificial, it would be too perfect to be convincing. Absolutely. One of the things I've watched Skinner Marink a couple times now, and one of the things I was thinking about in my last watch was viewing an edit of this that had all of the effects removed. So it was just a, a clean digital file. And how absolutely unfrightening that would be. Just just these high performance low light shots and it it just wouldn't it wouldn't work you know with with the way like cinematic fidelity and fidelity in like quotes here because fidelity fidelity is the most ideological thing because what are we being what are we having fidelity to right what is the thing that we're trying to faithfully recreate you know like like the camera the the camera doesn't take a, a picture of reality that's not that's not what this what what are you taking? What what are you stealing? You know, like you're not taking anything. You're not capturing. You're not imprisoning anything. You're 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 using this kind of like technological machine to produce an emulation of a moment, right? Like that's that's the whole heart of of this apparatus, you know. And like I guess that's the whole ap- heart of the apparatus. When we're talking about like actual film and film moving cameras. It's a bit different with digital, but like. We're kind of at this moment where I think the desire to to use either like, you know, like an Instagram filter that attempts to recreate old Polaroids or, uh, you know, like an app like like that shoots retro video or Kyle Edward Ball's work. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I think 
Oh, go on, go on. It's it's the apotheosis of like late twenty first of early twenty first century hauntology, right? Mm-hmm. This this idea of like that, f- and isn't it interesting that what we the what we're haunted by has crept ever forward retroactively? You know, I mean, when Mark mm-hmm. Fisher was writing about hauntology and Ghosts of My Life, he was talking about the seventies and eighties, and now we're kind of haunted by the possibility of the 90s and what what that represented and it's not a coincidence that like you know the camcorder and at home at at home video really started to take off then um in the late 80s and early 90s um and this this kind of gives it its modern counterpoint which you've already mentioned which is youtube yes i I think this is this is one of those things too where like like, so, so, like th- this emerges from YouTube, right? Like, the- these movies were originally uploaded to YouTube. Kyle Edward Ball short movies are still on YouTube as of this recording. And, like, th- this is this is where you would go to find the weird experimental and the cutting edge, right? Like, it's the same thing as, like, New York during New Hollywood, right? One of the reasons why New York became this, this, this like, almost holy site of cutting-edge cinema was because the the cost of operation was so low that people could afford to be extremely experimental. And now where is that happening? Oh, it's like YouTube and Vimeo and TikTok and Instagram and, and formerly Vimeo. Um, or not Vimeo, rather Vine. Um, formerly Vine. Like all, all of these video uploading platforms that are either very low cost or free and you can shoot on your smartphone if you wanted to. So the the cost the cost is down, so the experimentation can get very high. I guess that brings up an interesting question, right? Uh, which is that this often gets categorized as being "quote unquote" experimental horror. Um, and I, you know, you watch a lot more kind of like low and no budget movies than I do. You watch <laughs> a lot more weird stuff than I do, uh, which is to your credit and to my detriment. But like, what do you what do you think of this definition, this kind of terminology of experimental horror? And do you think Skinnerink fits in that category? So, I the definition of experimental in any artistic context, I think, is it's it's immediately taxonomically fraught because it loves to just instantly collapse, right? Because things that used to be incredibly experimental are now not like I think of Andy Warhol's work which at at one point was very experimental and now like there are Andy Warhol prints available at Target you know like so so thoroughly reabsorbed into a modern and popular sensibility that it's effect as an experimental work or cinema in general I think is a good example of this there was a point where the idea of a moving image was like literally experimental art or not art, depending on how you looked at early cinema. And then today, like, it's just it's just iteration on theme. And I think what makes this experimental is a very tight focus on a few of the key formal tentpole elements of the moving image. Right? Like, this, this film is experimenting with what you can do with effects and budget and camera angles and casting choices and dialogue choices and how we pace a movie and how we handle the plot. You know, like... One of the things I find interesting about Skinnamarink is like there's not really a traditional horror movie structure and there's not really a traditional horror movie feel. Like this is almost a direct rejection of the Blumhouse model, right? There there are jump scares in Skinnamarink, but they're not like it doesn't have that kind of formulaic feeling that like Paranormal 19 would have. 
Yeah, but in a way, there's also it's quite a traditional. It's a haunted house story, right? It's a, it's a. It, in in a way, could there be a kind of more traditional plot for this film? Oh, and that's 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 what I really really love about this. Like, it reminds me a lot of like, oh, like uh, Damon Packard's the early '70s horror trailer. Mm. You know, like this this is this is capturing. This is kind of like using the freedom offered by experimental cinema, right? The the desire, or not the desire, but the freedom of being like, okay, well, we don't have to like be beholden to any conventions, right? We don't have to worry so much about like making sure an actor gets enough face shots or something. Like if you like, you would have to worry about if you hired any of the Chris's or something. Um, but like what we have is like the distilled essence of a moment, right? Like this is. One of the things that made this my favorite movie of last year was that this is genuinely what I remember it feeling like being home alone and afraid. That kind of distilled moment, that distilled emotional energy, the kind of like inverse nostalgia for something terrible <laughs> that you can't go back to. Like this this movie was a little taste of that again. Yeah, I, I really like that you put this as your favorite film of last year. And I was like, I you know do you want do you want to talk maybe a bit more about what it was like to see it for the first time? Yeah, watching this movie for the first time was such a fantastic experience. Like, it, it was really up there with a lot of my favorite movies overall and in general. The the just the sheer control over the aesthetics here, the fact that everything is on point and focused, and like you know I don't know where you and I have accidentally turned ourselves into professional film critics over the last several years <laughs> so there is the, i mean like there's no such thing as a movie that doesn't have flaws right but this this movie i think is like the flaws the flaws make it even more beautiful the things in this that i'm like oh that doesn't that, that could have worked differently you know like i think make me like it even more because it gives me something to 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 contend with you know it's not it's not just totally saccharine and, and like, oh, a little treat. It's like, no, like there's yeah. stuff going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, a, I think, honestly, I think it's a film that re- rewards kind of, weirdly, I think it rewards patience. You know, if you're, if you're willing as a, as a viewer, if you're willing to extend it a, a degree of patience, I think you get something out of this, which is quite unique. Oh, yeah. And I think I think that kind of connects into like, because we talked about this a lot on the show, right? That like one of the unique things that cinema unlocked for art was the ability to control time in ways that other art forms can't do quite the same. And I think Skinnamarink is is very aware of that and very engaged with that as a, as a text. Like this, this and especially speaking to the YouTube format, like this almost reminds me of like, one of those endless looping YouTube videos where it's all about the vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, I, I could easily see the, like, 10-hour Skinamarink challenge cuts showing up on, on YouTube to watch if if copyright law were a little different. Uh, you know, it's like that, this, like, YouTube channel, lo-fi beats to chill slash, uh, to study slash relax to. This is, like, lo-fi horror movies to get weirdly nostalgic for your childhood, too. <laughs> <laughs> so how about you what are some of your formalistic thoughts with Skinamarink? um phenomenal sound mixing uh 
like it it honestly it does some of the best like auditory jump scares I've ever come across or I've come across for a very long time. You know, this kind of like half heard dialogue, you know, that maybe the only way you can really decipher what's going on is with the subtitles on screen, which is a great kind of like sly nod that this is a mm-hmm. film, you know. I love that detail. And this idea that like voices can just kind of shift around because spatially you're kind of dislocated. Um, I think the sound mixing is just phenomenal. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, and this isn't, I mean, like everything about this movie is just so impressive. This is just so clean isn't the right word because of the nature of the aesthetic, but it's just the, the precision here is just joyous. And like the jump scares, I, I think in connection to the sound is something I really want to focus on because like jump scares get a bad get a bad rap, I, I think, and they get a bad rap for good reasons, right? It's it's easy to fire off a jump scare, and I think a lot of movies have me ready for jump scares, right? When I'm wa- when I'm watching like your standard kind of Blumhouse horror movie, like I'm like, okay, I know, I know, I can feel the jump scares coming. I know when they're going to happen. And I'm braced for them. And so when they happen, it's a bit more of, of a tedium. But with Skinamarink, like this thing is so it's so hazy and so sublimated into itself that I'm like actively digging through the text of the film. I'm I'm like it's 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 kind of like the the experience of rewatching The Exorcist once you know there's a bunch of hidden faces in all of the dark corners. I'm like scouring the darkness in Skinamarink for more information. I'm like listening intently to every little scratching sound wondering if it's a clue to what's going on and then when the when the jump scares hit they actually catch me off guard because i was busy like enjoying the artwork <laughs> and of course it helps that like the ca- camera work is the, like the camera is like deliberately disorienting you know it keeps it's often low you never really see anybody's face full on you know you mm-hmm. feel you you feel like you are put in the perspective of uh of a child right uh, and the whole point mm-hmm. of childhood is this slow kind of horrific realization of how little you truly know um and i think the film captures that like nothing else absolutely the camera work i think is is so important to how skin and Marink functions and why it works so well as, as a bit of experimental horror. And I'm so happy to see an experimental horror movie getting such popular acclaim. Like that's that's pretty rare that, that a movie like this breaks breaks out of like the internet weirdo sphere and into the popular release zone. So that's that's beautiful. But like I really love the formally, like we have all learned how to see again thanks to cameras. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Cameras get get called the mechanical eye, which is like this whole discursive maze we can go into later. But like filmically, there is a tradition of how we see through the camera now. There is an entire language called cinematography that shows us things. Right. Like we we know we know what a low angle is meant to imply about a character intuitively now. Um, it's an accepted grammar, and then this is kind of throwing this away. Right. This is teaching us how to see as a child again. Right. These are bizarre camera angles, weird framing decisions like, you know, the camera's just left on the floor at awkward angles, focusing on weird little things. And like it's it's very this is like, you know, like the kind of the, some of the things I was talking about in Maprecy, like this is stepping back into the magic circle of play. 
Yeah. Like what makes this movie so scary is is that it's inviting you to play a little horror game and not in kind of the like boiled down way that we would play a horror game today where if you're playing a horror game on console or PC, you're what you're actually playing is Call of Duty. You're playing zombie Call of Duty, <laughs> right? Or if you're playing a horror game on TTRPG, you're playing a spreadsheet with ghosts. <laughs> but this is like this is this is something a bit more horrific right you like you're forced to insert yourself into the text like oh love this movie you have uh you have brought up the fact that this film found a kind of wider audience outside of like a slightly weird online people who watch experimental art horror but we also have to talk about the fact that this film uh spawned it spawned a lot of like weird art horror film memes um can we talk about joe biden (laughs) (laughs) yeah unexpected horror actor of of the year goes to joe biden's role in joe biden gets skinnamarinked what are your thoughts here what are your thoughts on joe biden getting skinnamarinked i i have i have some complicated takes on joe biden getting skinnamarinked um, I, I do. I think it's funny. A- absolutely, it's hilarious. It's Joe Biden getting skinnamarinked. Um, do I think it speaks to the like success and kind of like I don't know, not, not to get too auteur theory here, but the kind of like brilliant artistic sight and and uh, overall talent of Kyle Edward Ball as a filmmaker. Yes. Um, but I it worries me. And it doesn't worry me in the trite sense where I think someone is going to be like, like, like some Pentagon general is going to see the Joe Biden gets skinnamarink YouTube video and, and, and go to code red because he thinks that Biden is actually actually trapped in a haunted house. Um, but what worries me is this is one of the reasons why we're recording this episode while uh, the Writers Guild of America is on strike. Mm-hmm. Um, SAG-AFTRA, as, as of the recording of this episode, is uh, currently in the process of going on strike. And one of the things that both of them have as a reason to strike is that they're worried about AI technologies, right? Uh, writers are uh, rightfully concerned about studios using AI technologies to write episodes, write plots, or write the outlines to them for starters. And actors are increasingly worried about AI technologies straight up replacing them. Like we're already seeing uh, stunt coordinators and uh, stunt actors. When they get mo-capped, one of the things studios do is they they own all those mo-cap movements. Yeah. If action scenes have started to look a little the same to you, it's because studios now have a library of mocap that they can just hang any digital arm or like they have an armature that they can hang any digital assets on. So everything kind of looks the same and like that is going to happen with actors, right? Like, you know, Tom Cruise is an older man now. Harrison Ford is a much older man now. Like there's not a lot of Mission Impossible and Indiana Jones left in the tank. But AI, we, we could deep fake an infinite series of these movies. You could own the likeness of someone's voice and appearance and acting style in perpetuity. And that's something that these creative workers are going on strike against, right? And like, I mean, like, no, no, no surprise here. Like, I'm, I'm a smash the looms kind of guy when it comes to AI. And so the, the kind of like, uh, that, that kind of is, is a meta haunting whenever I see any of the like, 
oh, AI voice Joe Biden and AI voice Donald Trump are playing Fortnite memes or anything like that. Oh, like, God, the, yeah. The the thing that's hiding in the background, beyond beyond the fact that this is like, the, it, you know what it reminds me of? It also reminds me of like epic rap battles of history. The like... <laughs> Yes. The, yeah, yeah. The, they're 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 vile presidential rap battle episodes that that have have like I mean it's it's not as bad. Those are way worse than Joe Biden gets skinnamarinked. Um, but like they're this kind of this 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 subtle air of like I don't know capitulation. The subtle air of like oh like it, it's the it's it's the legacy of the joe biden as like the cool guy memes where he's wearing the aviators and he's like yeah enjoying yeah, the yeah. like talking cone. about his favorite wu-tang album yeah that shit it's yeah, like yeah. no like Joe biden joe biden's a fucking segregationist he's not that cool um i suppose if you are concerned about uh the oncoming uh, collapse of meaning into endless simulacra. It's important then to support your local podcasters, and you can do that through Patreon.com/slash Horror Vanguard, where you get early access to all of our episodes. You get access to the Discord server. You get access to a bonus episode every month. It really does help. It really does help us keep going. It will help us add windows and doors back into the HV crypt. Um, <laughs> let's and where let's keep it where going, could shall you we? find where where could you find horror vanguard online if you wanted to? Uh, you could find us wherever good podcasts are distributed, as well as horrorvanguard.com and patreon.com/slash horror vanguard. Twitter at horror vanguard, Instagram at horror vanguard, Skinnamarink House in the horror <laughs> vanguard pit. <laughs> If you if you if you can get to level thirty seven point one eight a of the back rooms, you can clip into the Skinnamarink house, which gets you into the Horror Vanguard pit. I mean, uh, some people don't think that counts because it does involve technically some game break- breaking mechanics and going out of bounds at several stages. <laughs> but uh, we're not purists here; it's fine. In 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 in, in level thirty seven one point one eight a of uh, the back rooms. You can find the John and Ash NPCs. They are incredibly friendly and will give you food and resources. However, you do have to listen to an unbroken 10-hour rant about a movie you haven't seen. <laughs> uh, let, let us, let's keep it going, shall we? Let's keep it going. So where, where would you like to start our, our little discursive foray? Um, I, think, I think we should talk about ghosts and we should talk about the idea of trying to communicate with that which isn't there and what do you think about this film in that context so i I think this is going to be the one thing about the movie that i didn't like okay is the ghost the ghost towards the end of the film gets lines of dialogue Mm mm-hmm which for me, for me, the thing, the thing that is just stunningly beautiful. You got the shots of the doll, the shots of the TV, the children. There's so much grain and like, oh my god, this movie is so beautiful for how much it wants me to like dig through the film and fight to try and figure out like. In, in my first, my first watch through of this, like I am just struggling to 
is, is this a haunted house? Is this some kind of weird dimensional paradox? Like, it was so beautiful because it's not giving you any information about what's going on. And then towards the end, there's a ghost and a ghostly voice. And the voice is like, get a knife, do something evil with it. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like that kind of takes me out a, a few layers because now that's the first thing in this movie that has a traditional horror movie read. Now it's yeah, some kind yeah. of poltergeist. I know how poltergeists act. I've seen poltergeist. We we've all seen these movies. We know the rules and that the movie at the end kind of like inserts itself into a horror filmic genre tradition, which I feel like that's something that I don't want to call that a misstep, but that's something that I'm still kind of fighting with. I don't, I, I should walk back my statement a little bit. I don't know whether I see that as a misstep creatively or if I haven't quite figured out what I think about that. Well, I guess the thing that I would say is that like the relationship between our own, the structuring forces of our own unconscious response to the dream world and the cultural Mm -hmm. environment in which we exist is a kind of dialectical process so, <laughs> so, so I've got the immortal science of dialectical materialism. Well, like, the, I guess the point that I'm getting at is like the logic of this is is a it's it's kind of a dream, right? It's based on a nightmare that people have had, right? You wake up in a house and nobody's there. Um, but nightmares are not they're not kind of pre-social forms. They come from and attain coherence within a kind of cultural and social totality. So, I, and I, I do kind of agree with you, but I think the, the point I would make is like, you, you you said that it puts it in the kind of genre, but like our dreams happen in genres too, right? That's how mm-hmm. enmeshed we are with cinema. And we have been for a hundred years. I think that, I think that is such, such a good point to kind of like look at the, because it's not it's it's not what what is a haunting if not something that is fundamentally bound to filmic technologies right so for for about 150 years now there there has been no such thing as a ghost that doesn't at at some way float its fantastic form back to the filmic right like everybody forgets that Abraham Lincoln's wife has ghost photos of her with ghost Abraham Lincoln like this this hasn't this has never been a niche phenomena happening in some kind of occultic subterranean condition. This has been like some of the most popular stuff ever on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And the reason that I bring it up is because I think the, the film, which is so so obviously bound up in childhood and memory, like one of the big structuring forces on your memory if you grew up in like the late 80s and 90s is media, right? Is a kind of cinema. It, it's it's children's cartoons it's home videos mm-hmm. that your dad shot on the very first camcorder you ever picked up right your memory itself and thus our our kind of unconscious gets structured into film mm-hmm. and this is this is something that i think the film calls into question right we we talk about film as if it is fact Right. We we have accidentally absorbed uh, the propaganda of like CSI Miami and criminal minds. 
where you know like we we have the phrase caught in 4k now it's just a modulation on you know like pixar it didn't happen which which was the the phrase in vogue a decade ago right and going before that it's always gone back to the photographic as some kind of like if you have a picture then it's real then you can prove it right everybody wants the bigfoot picture because if you have the picture you have the ultimate proof but like photographs aren't proof Right. F- photographs are narrative, their context, their story. A, a, a picture of something happening is an alleged picture of something allegedly happening that, you know, like a clever lawyer could spin one way or the other. Right. Picks are not evidence. Right. They're, they're just kind of part of a larger constellation of finding meaning. And Skinnamarink is Skinnamarink is just just playing with that in front of us. And it's so good because like even though we have the voice of a ghost here at the end, and and we've got the kind of general form of a haunted house movie. This is not like very many haunted house films. Yeah, precisely. And it's like, um, I mean, what you're talking about is like the metaphysics of presence, right? This idea that actually, mm-hmm. oh yeah, uh, that which is is in some way more reliable, directly reported or directly perceived is the most reliable. But the whole the whole history of of film theory is like actually to 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 point the camera at something to have something captured is inevitably to change it right just because uh, you know pixar it didn't happen and it's like actually maybe it happened because there are pictures right <laughs> yeah right? Mm-hmm. um so and and i think this is bound up in a lot in suburbia as well this idea of like the the kind of idyllic life or like what does it mean to grow up in in that kind of house that's the skinnerink house um and again so much of like suburban suburban kind of like uh nostalgia is mediated through this kind of grainy handheld camera aesthetic i think that is suburbia is such a good way to look at skinnerink because this you know if we are to accept that this is some kind of haunted house movie which I don't, I don't entirely accept about Skinnamarink. I, I, this is, I mean, like this is kind of like the the a deconstruction thing, but like this is participating in the haunted house genre less so than Poltergeist. Um, which, which I don't know. I read Poltergeist as like that's like the ultimate, that's the apex haunted house movie. It's the most haunted house. <laughs> um, I mean, like, I guess maybe paranormal now that we're in the future, but what is time? Um. <laughs> sidebar time but i think one of the interesting things i i I see about suburbia in the context of skinnamarink is that the the availability of these filmic technologies distributes itself along similar patterns that we see with like um what is um his house is a movie that i was thinking a lot about while watching skinnamarink um you know his house which we talked about was that last year i think yeah 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 and like like that that is a entirely different vision of the haunted house movie and what draws the distinction there is race race and class position right like like that's 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 a movie haunted like his house is haunted by british colonialism and and class structures and skinnamarink has has different approaches to similar ghosts I actually agree with you. I actually agree with you. And I think in a way it's almost, it's because there's so little dialogue, it's almost pre-verbal. It's almost pre-linguistic. Um, mm-hmm. And so in a way it's more, it's more inchoate than something like his house. It's more like, 
yeah, uh, nebulous as to the kind of specific object of fear. But that's one of the reasons why it resonates so widely, right? Because it suddenly doesn't require anything other than the viewers. It like, like Skinnerbrink has this great participatory anthropology. Ergo, yes. like, to watch it is to be in the house. Right? To watch it is to be Skinnerbrinked. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And this is also, I mean, like your your point about it being pre-verbal, I think is really interesting. Um, one of the things I've come to love about certain experimental horror movies is that in a way they become pre-cinematic, right? Like they, they work to unmake the kind of accepted fundamentals of the the, the cinematography, the cin- cinematograph. <laughs> mm. um, and, and they work to take us back to a point when we did not have this kind of like accepted cinematic language like this and i mean this in the most like like i don't know if kyle edward ball ever listens to this episode i mean what i'm about to say in the most respectful way possible this is a a joyous playful babbling of cinema cinema language right like like it is very very freeing in that sense right like it's trying to not be kind of encumbered by like okay like these are the shots we have to get this is how we do this kind of shooting now I'm going to incorporate some Dutch angles to let our audience know that things are a little twisted. Yeah, and by by it, releasing it, that, it, it's it's very much gotten rid of like the cinematic parenthood. I think there are quite obviously yeah. influences. Um, oh, clearly, I know yeah. Paul has said like the the first Black Christmas is a big influence, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but it, it's it's a way of trying to get rid of you know the anxiety of of influence right you go back to you go back to the 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 almost the very primeval stuff of of you know when you're 5 or 6 and you swing around a camcorder and see what gets captured you know those you know those like viral videos of like the kid grabbing the phone and then running away with it oh yeah that's what yeah. this feels like in places <laughs> and i i just i love that so much like we don't talk about play enough uh, on this show. I think horror relies so strongly on a good sense of play because the the space of a horror movie is very similar to so many play, play spaces. You're not actually threatened by a horror movie. You know, outside of like larger political conversations that we have, I don't know, done for several hundred hours at this point. <laughs> but like immediately it's not going to harm your body. But you accept, you accept that it will, right? You enter into this, like, classic Heisinger magic circle of play, and you accept that Michael Myers is threatening, and not just a a tired, sweaty man in a mask, you know, getting getting paid less than he should. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, so you mentioned parenthood. Yeah, I, what do you think about parenthood in the context of this film? Because... Yeah, they've they've gone, they've and in a way again, this is one of the things that makes me think in terms of childhood dream. Like, you know, people don't necessarily just die; people just go away sometimes. Yeah, right. There's this like, like for for children or very young children who maybe don't have a full understanding of what death means. You know, that's that's the terrifying thing that like actually someone can be there and then just gone one day. And obviously, as you kind of get older, you realize that maybe the really terrifying thing is actually you get to watch the vanishing process, as it were, right? People 
people leave incrementally because that's, you know, death is not mm-hmm. simply just an event, but a process as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I guess there's this kind of interesting, there's an, there's an absent presence in this film, which is the parent figure. Um, and yeah, I guess I wanted to know what your thoughts were. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. This is kind of like thematically an inverted parent trap. <laughs> oh, we we have jokes here. We have jokes. Took me nine hours to write that one. I, I've been sweating. Yeah, I've been up all night. No. <laughs> uh, it's just, just more Lindsay Lohan movies we have to talk about in the future. Um, so one of the things that I was thinking about in, in relation to parents in this one is there's kind of a like... This, this movie has an interesting class position in regards to how it's depicting the existence of this home and and the kind of family dynamics here, right? Because like the, the, these are very much two young children who are used to relying on each other, right? Like even if their ways of fulfilling needs are uh, naturally very childish. Um, but like what, what are the conditions that remove parents from real world situations? Well, class is a big one. You know, you're, you know, parents are often like if your parents are gone a lot as a kid, that it's a good chance that they were working two jobs or couldn't afford childcare. So you were stuck home alone or something like that. And like, I, I think like, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the condition of adulthood towards I'm, I'm having trouble forming this point without without saying the word adulting and spoiling what we're going to talk about towards the end of the episode. But I do find it interesting that we have this kind of like this fading historic point that like two parents who can easily be read as working class, holding down multiple jobs, unable to afford childcare can nevertheless afford a suburban home. You know, like, and I think one of the scary things about this movie is like the, the concept of home ownership has become kind of nothing more than a memory for so many people. And, and this is, we're weaving our way towards the end of the discourse here, but what what are your, what are some of your ideas on that? I think the big thing, um, I think the big thing is like you don't necessarily realize uh, as a as because again, if you think about this film as entirely from a child's point of view, you don't necessarily realize the contingency of your own existence and mm-hmm. all of those and all of those factors that you talked about, like you know uh, the political class, economic that structure your existence, right? You know you might think that you come from a really, you might think that everything is kind of fine and normal. And then, you know, somebody loses a job or you lose a home or somebody gets very sick. And suddenly all of those things, which are kind of just taken for granted become much more unstable. And these are really foundational mm-hmm. beliefs. Like they're very formative of a personality. And so it's, it's kind of, uh, it's deeply unnerving. It's deeply terrifying when this kind of void opens up in front of you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and I know you wanted to say something about perception. Well, this is this is the other thing that, like, I think the film is incredibly good at, which is this idea of like, what is it that you see, and what is it that someone who is a child sees? And a lot of the time, children get very fascinated by things which, you know, we we think they shouldn't really pay attention to. And what I love is like mm-hmm. so many of the camera shots here are like the corner of the TV or like the corner yep. of a room or like the bottom third of a doorway or like, and it's like, yeah, that's exactly how a kid would look at the room. And what it makes you do is it makes you pay so much more careful attention to the frame because you're desperate to see the entire picture. But 
I don't know. I think there's something really freeing about it, right? This this idea of perception as being something that is like, um, not necessarily structured by what you should be paying attention to, but just by what your attention falls on. I I think I, I think what you just said is so important, right? The whole idea of what you should be seeing. We've talked a lot today about how filmic technologies and, and the kind of like you know filmic history has informed how we see on just a conceptual level but that's not the only technology informing perception and how we see right our vision is goal oriented our vision is productive right we see in order that we work better you know all of our technologies are kind of bent towards producing value for capital and i think the way children see or the way children the sight of a child is depicted in skinnamarink one of the things that makes it so scary and one of the things that makes interacting with children sometimes very challenging is that children, you know, ch- children are young, they're fresh, they're, they haven't yet been like, their backs aren't broken by the boss's yoke yet. Yeah. You know, like, like they have the strength to go like, oh, like, you know, like, daddy, why can't you stay home and play all day? You know, and, and then and then in the back of your head, you'd be like, well, I have to like, you know, like log in at my job at the, you know anti-communism factory in order to bring home more ego waffles right and like but you can't explain that to a fucking child they're they're free of that yet they haven't been indoctrinated they haven't been broken and in skinnamarink we like like all of the shots of toys i find are fascinating because they're framed so oddly they they reminded me of of wix photography in the the i spies except for really evil and distorted Mm. there's a kind of like whimsical precision to, to what we're seeing and not seeing and like, you know, like you and I, like, you know, we are, we're, we're post-lapsarian, right? We've been corrupted by productivity and work culture and meetings and profit. We're, we're looking at these items and we're like, we're, we're, we're seeing these toys and we're, and we're seeing an, like not an assemblage of objects, not freedom for play and expression and growth. You know, we're like, we're, we're looking for some kind of meaning, you know, we're attempting to reconstruct this into a productive purpose. When for these kids, like the, the the purpose of these things is self-evident. They're for play. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's by play that you can you get to all of this really interesting uh like all of this interesting kind of symbolic inchoate psychodrama that actually makes subjectivity. Yeah. And I think given that you've mentioned play, that brings us on to um, arguably the most important character in the this star of the show entire film we have to talk about the fisher price chatterphone La- ladies and gentlemen welcome to the scream debut of the fisher price chatter pull toy telephone <laughs> let's go <laughs> here we go oh yeah i immediately went on ebay and bought a vintage <laughs> no i did not do that um so this phone i think is really interesting we also have to talk about kind of the meta reaction to this movie like like in a, you know like i mention this every now and then but like a non-zero part of what drives this show is kind of criticism of criticisms mm-hmm. sometimes we're not talking about the movie dear listeners sometimes we're talking about the people who talk about the movies <laughs> um but like so so the fisher price the phone the phone that we see in a couple shots in this movie that's just one of many toys for the record, that that show up here it has become kind of 
the character, the star, it, it in a way is the most identifiable face in the movie. And one, I think it's totally natural that people have gravi- gravitated towards this Fisher Price chatter phone as the kind of the the like signifier of like the 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 like ultimate distilled semiotics of Skinamarink because it's the only thing with a face in in the movie and we're humans and that's kind of just the direction that drives us but i also i i can't help but feel a kind of like a a, a funkified poison in there somewhere right like i can't help but feel that like part of the reason that we key in on on this vintage toy is because it's a vintage toy and the kind of contemporary condition of adults especially millennial adults revolves so strongly around these objects of nostalgia whether they're actual vintage pieces or the very item you owned in childhood or the kind of funkified regurgitation of said items yeah i mean i i guess I guess isn't this there's a sort of like Proustian thing happening here, this this desire to kind of recapture a lost memory. But like the very mm-hmm. the very nature of our kind of first impressions, our first you know, this first kind of like uh almost existential moment of encountering something as the toy, that that which we can literally play with in the world, is its contingency, right? And there's that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. All all haunted house films, all all films with ghosts in it are tragedies, and the tragedy in this is like the impossibility of recapturing what we've lost, and what we've lost collectively is is what we were, because that's the very nature of human existence. So the very closest we can get is, you know, the the the, the vintage chatterphone that you know the eBay scalpers will sell back to us. <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 the phone that's now going to have the keyword Skinamarink put in the listing somewhere. <laughs> and I think th- this is this is one of the things that is kind of metatextually the most frightening about Skinamarink. Is that that's the object of nostalgia for so many people. Like I was so I was on a train headed back to Chicago when I was writing the pricey for Skinamarink. Right. And and I was trying to look up the toy. I was trying to look up the exact make and model of the phone. Uh, uh, for Skinamarink, right? And as I was looking it up, like the in, in you know an older woman was sitting next to me, and she's like, "Oh my god, that that old Fisher Price phone! I had one of those as a kid." And and like you know like she started a conversation from that point. But like it was so interesting to see like an honest to god like nostalgic reaction at the side of the phone. And I think there's something in that that's a little vexing, a little like. It frightens me a little bit on a metatextual level that the objects that trigger our nostalgia are hunks of lethal petrochemical toxins woven into a semi-stable shape by slave labor, or at, at the very least, some of, you know, a, a labor paid such a comically low wage under such horrible conditions that saying technically not slavery is almost worse. I mean, I guess that's the burden, isn't it? That's the kind of horror of of nostalgia when we recognize the we recognize our own desire to make it into this perfectible memory, which kind of inculcates it yeah. from all the from all the sort of systemic violence that upholds capitalism generally. 
Oh, absolutely. And here in Skinnamarink, here's this damn thing just blinking at us in the dark. We're just you're just you're just staring right into the eyes of this horrible fallen poisonous god as it blinks back at you. And and the reaction, the reaction in the crowd is just applause and a, applause and cheers because I know that thing. I recognize it. It's such a reaction of kind of this the 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 the, the post Family Guy media scape where everything is call and response, nod and react. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go, oh, it's the thing. It did the thing that I w-. and then you go, hang on a second, and all of these things get start to kind of like fall apart, and you realize mm-hmm. you realize really that there's a kind of inescapable melancholy, and that's what we're afraid of, right? We're not really afraid of the thing that's out there. We're afraid of what the thing out there has kind of reminded us about our own existential condition. Yes, yes, there is no thing out there. It's all the thing in there. It's all it's all the thing that's in us. And in the case of plastics, now literally. And I think that this this for, for me connects to something else in Skinnamarink that, that I found to be really interesting. And that's that's we're gonna we're gonna do some adulting here on the show right now. We're gonna hashtag adulting and bring that phrase back for for a little discursive conversation. I think that Skinnamarink comes out at, at kind of the perfect moment, right? Because like so many so many millennials right now, we're now the age that like when our parents' generation was this age, they had us as young children and they lived in homes. You know, homes of any shape, whether it's a trailer park or like, you know, a suburban home or something a bit more opulent. And I think broadly speaking, like millennials have been kind of locked out of the material signifiers of hashtag adulting, the things that make adults adults, the kind of material objects that we use culturally to mark adulthood are very difficult to come by, if not largely locked out. And so I think we get to this moment where like it, it's kind of parasitically natural that the reaction to the Fisher Price phone toy is so strong. Yeah, because if you don't if you don't have the the material components of adulthood, then you I guess have the material components of childhood, or at least you have the you have the image of it, you have the memory, right? You yes. have the mm-hmm. you have the half remembered dream of it. Um, and it, in a way, isn't that the most terrifying thing of all? Right, you, because one day you could wake up and it will all be gone, and it will all be gone again, and there'll be no way of getting it back. <laughs> yes, it's it's Kafka's metamorphosis, but instead of becoming something different, you wake up as a more tired version of yourself. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.